0: so welcome everybody to our second series of podcasts and this is called Big Cat Diary Uncut it's episode 4 2002 and it's subtitled Cubs Galore Marsh Pride Honey and Zawadi 2002 was definitely a watershed. We'd been six years on television, started in 1996, and we knew what worked and what didn't. We'd been told all about keeping our audience on the edge of their seat. That magic word, which could be a bit of a pain in the butt at times, reiterated too often, jeopardy. But the great thing about working with big cats is that their life is full of jeopardy. Certainly to the human observer. There's always well now I was gonna say there's always something happening, and then I'm thinking of all of those many hours in the daytime, particularly when particularly lions and leopards do very little. More active at night, the cheetahs, yes, wandering around in the daytime, but you can have an awful lot of downtime, but time where you simply cannot take your eyes off your quarry in case they disappear. So we knew what worked, but in this series we were going to try something a little bit different and we were very excited about it. We were going to, each of the presenters, myself and Simon, were going to have a DV, digital video, director operating a handheld DV camera and they would be in the car with the presenter. So it meant that our audience would literally, you, would be travelling with us. It was as if you were on safari in the vehicle with us as we went out to look for our big cats. Now, that was wonderful, but of course you can imagine there's no privacy when you've got a a person with a camera following your every move in the vehicle, and we can talk a little bit more about the downside of that another time. So we were very keen to tap into a wider audience. We knew that people loved Big Cat Diary by now, um, but The fact was the opportunity, the cake as such, of viewers was being increasingly sliced smaller and smaller. The competition between traditional analog television, digital channels, you can imagine there's still as many people watching television, but their choices are far greater. So we knew we had to keep up on our toes. And our Series producer, executive producer, Fiona Pitcher, who was known for being able to seek out new resources, came up with the idea of, why don't we have a third presenter? Rather than just have Jonathan and Simon sharing one of the big cats in the past, it had been us sharing lions, Simon following the cheetahs, me following the leopards. And it meant that, we could have, if we could find the right person, another presenter. Each cat with their own presenter. And Fiona Pitcher decided and sourced Sabah Douglas Hamilton. Now, whether you live in East Africa or Kenya or not, you may well have heard of this extraordinary family. The Douglas Hamiltons, Sabah's father and mother, were already well known in their own rights as followers of elephants. So rather like Angie and I had followed the story of the big cats all these years, the Douglas Hamiltons, Ian and his wife, Aurea, had made a landmark study of elephants in Manyara National Park in Tanzania. And there were some incredible television opportunities back then. I remember there was a survival programme program filmed by Dieter Plague, sadly now deceased, but a wonderful camera person, who followed the story of this charismatic couple, she an Italian, him a Scotsman, with his golden flowing locks and his skills in an aeroplane and his daring do. And it followed their journey, as they watched the elephants and got to know them individually. They recognized them by what kind of shaped tusks they had, by the blood vessels in their ears. They could tell the elephants apart as individuals. Again, what was required if you really want to understand the nature of these social creatures? And we found the same with realizing that you could Individually recognize the big cats by their coat markings, by the whisker spot patterns in the case of lions. And so Saba came from wonderful ancestry. And so she was born in Kenya. She had a master's in anthropology and she was extremely charismatic. And that was just the ticket for the third presenter on Big Cat Diary, So we welcomed Sabah with open arms. Here was a chance to take the series to another level. Now, we also knew that every time we produced this series, there was going to be a budget cut. So to try and make things as smooth as possible, either Simon or myself and Angie would go down to the Mara a couple of weeks before we were due to actually... um, start filming with one of our producers or more than one of our producers from the Bristol, the Natural, the BBC Natural History Unit in Bristol, and we would get together and we would look at the possible options for our stories. And the thing that we had learned and we knew from watching these animals was the best case scenario was when your big cat was accompanied by cubs. Because Wonderful to have lions which are social and which there's an opportunity to see lots of things happening when they're up and active because there's numbers. You could have 20 individuals within a pride um, and giving you plenty of options of activity, whether it's action in terms of play or hunting, lots of options. Great viewing for our audience. And then the more solitary cats, the cheetahs and the leopards, Well, when they had cubs, again, you were assured of activity between the cubs playing with each other, interacting with their mother and the mother interacting with them, hunting, playing, all of those dynamics. So cubs were gold. And in this instance, we hit, what would we call it, pay dirt, or we hit gold, because all three of the big cats that we would be following in this series, 2002, had cubs, So let's first of all just check in on the Marsh Pride because we had always basically hoped because we were camped along the Mara River close to Governor's Camp who outfitted our camp and the Marsh Pride were our local lions and they were the lions that I had first watched in 1977 and Angie and myself and others had been able to tell their story over the years whether it was on television, whether it was in our drawings or our photographs in our illustrated books these were the lions that we knew best and so we always looked at them first to see what was the potential for us to follow their story in this particular year well this was going to be a great year for filming with the marsh pride there were two males our topi plains pride males well established now with the group and we had eight females and they were bb we had carly we had the Blonde Sisters, that was Lispy and Nusu Nusu. We had White Eye, we had Mama Laga, and we had an older female, Notch, who was around the same age as Carly. Carly was Bibi's mum. Now, it's easy for me to just rattle off those names. And of course, to me, they mean something. The idea of those individuals just comes alive to me at the mention of their name, as it would to other people who know them. But for our audience... What would make them recognizable? Well, White Eye, of course, with her blind eye, that would do. Um, But in general, they were just quite a large group of lions and quite hard to tell apart. But that's where, with our two males, we could tell the difference. One, the larger one, we called Blondie, and the other one, younger, a little bit more retiring, less confident, would become Simba. And we'd see more of him in the years to come. Now, the dynamic between those two males was quite different. Blondie, whether he was related or not, or whether these two males had come together as nomads, Blondie was bigger, more powerful, and he was able to for a while, and it was fascinating to watch the dynamic change between those males. Blondie initially dominating the younger male Simba, whether it came to mating or at kills, and then later, the tide changing and Simba becoming more proactive. So in 2002, we had two of the females, Mama lugga with three cubs, White Eye with four cubs. They were about four weeks old. And they had given birth in what we called the Bilashaka lugga. In Swahili, it means always or without fail, a certainty. And it was named Bileshaga, Shaka, so this was an intermittent watercourse with bushes, with croton thickets, acacia thickets, trees, plenty of cover a drainage line, intermittently having water in it. Normally there were always pools of water. Sometimes it was a mini torrent. But it was a landmark in the marsh Lions territory. And these luggers are very important in any Lions territory because they're somewhere where you can lie up in the shade. They're somewhere potentially where you can have your cubs and keep them safe. So the Bilashaka lugger, without fail... In Swahili, was because without fail you'd probably find lions there. It was one of the two hot spots for our lions within Marshland territory. The other being the marsh itself, which came into its own more in the dry season. Now Mameluga and White Eye had as, and they may be in fact probably were themselves born on that lugger. Well, we know they were. Both of them were survivors of the Buffalo attack of 1998. They were born in the same area. And it often happens that a mother will choose the same place where she was born to have her cubs. So it was the natal breeding ground for the Marsh Pride. So they tucked tuck themselves away in the lugger with their cubs, separated from each other, trying to keep those cubs away from other members of the Pride so as the cubs could imprint on them, could learn their mother's voice, could learn her smell and hers, theirs. And so you would have this imprinting, which is so important in the milieu of the pride when they all come together as the cubs get get older. So as when mum calls, they know that it's mum. And she knows when they call who her cubs are. So that was a fantastic situation for us. 2002, 23 lions. It couldn't have been better. And the oldest Carly, Bibi's mother, along with Notch, were about 10 years old. So they were now old by lion standard. And the younger females, our survivors from the buffalo attack, were four years old. And this was their first litter. Now, what about the cheetahs? What was Simon going to be doing? Because Amber, or Queen, as we knew her, had died in early 2001. So a year previously. Between series, she had died. She was about 14 years old. So an extraordinary life for this female, who had survived being orphaned, one of five cubs, orphaned when a predator, probably a lion or leopard, attacked their mother. And at seven months old, they were then raised by rangers, they were provided with food, and then eventually they returned to the wild. And Queen Amber always was used to vehicles and used to jump up on the bonnet. She was used to being fed by people who brought the food out to her in vehicles. So she was very used to vehicles. She had survived being caught in a wire snare. I remember Warren Samuels, our ace cameraman, who was part of our cheetah crew, along with Simon, telling me how they'd come across Amber, caught in one of those treacherous wire snares, a loop of wire attached to a tree, and set on a game path, where when an animal passes through, gets caught up in the snare, struggles, the snare gets tighter, whether it's around their leg, or in this instance, around Amber's neck. Anyway, they managed to release the snare from her, so a cat of nine lives. So an extraordinarily female, but she was no longer there. So what were we going to do? Well, we knew that the Mara Triangle, that part of the Masai Mara Reserve on the west of the river, which forms a triangle between its eastern boundary is the river, its western boundary is the Syria or Ololo Escarpment, rises a thousand feet above the plains where Angie and I were married in 1992. The southern part of the triangle is the border with Tanzania and the great Serengeti. Mara Serengeti are one and the same things, but the Mara is about an eighth to a tenth the size of its big brother to the south. And there are no um, fences, nothing separating, just a, a mark on a map to show where the Serengeti ends and the Mara begins. So... Simon decided, because the triangle's always been good for cheetahs. I think one reason, there was a lot of poaching in the old days, with people coming down to set snares for meat from above on the escarpment, which is the boundary of reserve, so there's farmers up there, people, and at times we would get poaching gangs who would come down into the reserve, who would sit up on the escarpment, wait the right moment, and then come down, set their snares, and transport meat out of the reserve for human consumption and it meant that quite often lions would get tangled up in those snares hyenas would get caught up in snares so the poaching had actually taken the lion population had reduced its number to some extent on the triangle and that's good for cheetahs because the biggest problem for cheetahs in the Mara other lions and hyenas, which are in great numbers. So you could look at the Mara and Serengeti and say, but it has to be good for cheetahs. There's so much of their natural prey, impalas, Thompson's gazelles, creatures such as that. Yes, there is. But it's also very, very good for lions and hyenas, and they are bigger, more powerful, and social. And so the cheetahs always in lower numbers, but the triangle, a good place for them. And another reason being, it's part of the wetter area of the Mara in terms of the rainfall. And it is it, there are some wonderful stands of trees, balanites we call them. People think they're acacia trees, but they're not. They're a desert date Balanites aegyptica, and those are dotted, particularly in those areas, those moist areas that gets plenty of rainfall. There is a Balanites woodland. Now it's not a thick woodland; they're literally scattered evenly across the plains. And those trees at times are a godsend for a cheetah with cubs because they have a sloping trunk, and cheetah cubs and a mother can nip up that tree and get themselves away from hyenas or lions and so again one reason why perhaps cheetah survival on that side and recruitment of cubs is particularly good now simon and warren so warren samuels warren was our dedicated wildlife cameraman and boy oh boy what an asset a wonderful cameraman incredible reactions loves capturing action scenes so cheetahs right up his street and um just an incredible resource. He was a game uh, ranger in Southern Africa. He grew up uh, learning about all the ropes in Londolozi, a private game reserve near to the Kruger National Park. His mum and dad ran governor's camp for a while. So he was very much of the Mara and knew it intimately. And then Simon was also filming and photographing the cheetahs and presenting. And then this year we had Pete McCowan Who was the DV cameraman? He would be in the car with Simon, filming Simon's every move, recording what he was doing and what he was saying. And Warren would be in his own vehicle with the wonderful Wilson, his driver and spotter, in a separate vehicle with a big lens. Now, this year, Simon and Warren had an absolute beast of a lens, but what a beauty! It's a 1000 to 50 millimeter zoom lens. It's built like a tank. It looks like a, a telescope. But the imagery, you wouldn't want to know what the price was. You would not want to lose this particular lens. And it is a fantastic lens. And so it was a real coup for our team to have those lenses. Because what we've always known with Big Cat Diary, and I think anything in terms of whether you're doing an exhibition or you're trying to create a film, you want the highest possible production values and we certainly could get that one of the beauties of working with the BBC Natural History Unit they had the resources financially to be able to ensure that we all had the right kit so now Simon finds that there is a cheetah with four cubs in the triangle sounds wonderful by the time he gets over there to begin filming having wrecked the area and found that she was there with these four cubs she's down to three cubs two males and a female he names her honey due to the colour of her eyes, rather like Amber, named her Amber for the colour of her eyes. And, you know, people have different views on naming these animals. There are some people who say, but, you know, this is filmed in Kenya. They should be Swahili names. And, of course, our driver guides often give the same cats Swahili names. We give them Swahili names too, sometimes The BBC, the corporation, as they did early on, decided, but people won't know who you or what you're talking about. We need to give them English names. Well, that soon changed and we were very glad that it did. So we had Zawadi, our leopard, being called Shadow, which was the same name that we'd given to our Labrador. Very strange. I think people could easily adopt and love those Swahili names, but then it's going to be, well how do we name them what kind of are we going to name them bruno and brando and or should we name them by physical characteristics like we often would do white eye our lions notch because of notches in her ears half tail because of physical characteristics but some people say no you shouldn't name them at all you're humanizing them i disagree you give them a name because these animals actually are more than just a lion leopard or cheetah they're individuals and i think to humans a name actually gives an identity to the animal and when i hear the name i don't necessarily think about the context of the name or obviously with half tail i might but basically it's a tag but it has a little bit of emotion to it and if there's anything that we know and love about big cat diary and filming it was that we wanted to capture being human and our relationship to other life and other wild creatures and endorsing the idea that it's an emotional experience. We live and breathe and feel along with these big cats and we love following them. So we've got honey She's probably about four years old at this time, three to four years old. She was born in around 1998, 99. So this could be, and we believe it was, her first litter of cubs at three years of age, maybe four years of age. We think that she came from the Serengeti because, as I said, there's no fences, no boundaries, nothing to stop them. And cheetah females particularly range over huge home ranges, Far too big to call them territories. They can't defend them. They just walk away and avoid other cheetahs, And so they need such a big area because of the nature of their prey. Often, Thompson's gazelles, nomadic. If you just were to sit in one place, you'd be short of food. So these females range, I mean, for instance, honey's range could have been as much as a thousand square kilometers. So that kind of size. And females... Female cheetahs will overlap in terms of their their range, their home range. And in fact, it turned out that there was another female in the same area as Honey, which we believe and were told was her sister. And she too, well, she had three cubs. And so Honey had four and then three. So we had these two cheetahs to follow and watch. But as always with Big Cat Diary, we wanted to home in on an individual and follow her story which is exactly what Simon did. So every morning up at five, out in the vehicle at five, they would head to the Mara River. Well, we were camped on the Mara River. They'd head upstream just a, a short distance opposite to Little Governor's Camp because governors, uh, their are camps. They've got four camps, in fact. There's Main Camp, there's Ilmoran, there's Private Camp and Little Governor's Camp. Now, Little Governor's Camp is in the triangle on the other side of the river. You get there, by going in a boat with a boatman who pulls it across by hanging onto a rope which is strung from one side to the other and you just hope that you don't fall in, that a hippo doesn't bang against the the boat or even a large crocodile for that matter. But it's a lot of fun safari is all about adventure so that would be their routine off they would go we wouldn't see them till later and uh, it was an extraordinary time for Simon to be in this particular area with Warren and trying out all kinds of new things I mean the camera crew the cheetah camera crew they had rotating shots where the cameraman would literally do an arc around Simon behind his camera. So you'd get this wonderful 360 view of Simon looking out into the plains from behind, from the front. We had split screenshots, which would show you both the prey that the cheetah was targeting in the same frame. There were time lapses. And so there was every day that we would come back in the evening, we would check the storyboard. So the running sense the running list of sequences that each of our teams was actually compiling. Each team had its own producer. Each team had its own wildlife cameraman. Each team had its DV director. At times their own sound crew or a roving sound man. And then they would have their own spotters. And when it came to the cheetah spotter, we had an amazing, I'm just looking, his name was Jaffat, And Jaffat. He was like Buona Chui, who taught me to how to look and to what to look for in terms of finding a leopard. Well, when it came to cheetahs, Jaffet, a big, had a huge smile, wonderful man. He just, he slotted into what it was that the cheetahs were doing. He could tell you, well, if it's not here, why don't we try over there? He had those wonderful hunches, which nine times out of ten would come true. So, a great resource for us. So, Saba. Well, there were some extraordinary images of Saba with our blondie males, our two males, Simba and Blondie. And uh, it, it was just wonderful to see her immersing herself into the Marsh Pride story because it was such a rich one. As you'll see, there was going to be a lot of drama. But I had another lion character who I wanted to try and catch up with. And the audience was right behind me, Solo. That adorable little cub, who by the time we finished filming in the year 2000, he was about five months old. And everybody, including ourselves, well, we knew because we'd seen what was going on before, because we spend a lot of our time in the Mara, regardless of whether we're with the Big Cat Diary crew. So Solo. Was he still alive? He'd have been about one and a half years old. And how do you tell one lion from another? We said how confusing it can be amongst all those lionesses in the Marsh Pride, except for White Eye. And the way to do it is what Judith Rood and I discovered with the lion study she did in Nairobi National Park. It's the whisker spots. And those whisker spots, rows of black dots on the muzzle of a lion, they don't change from the time the cub is born till when it dies. They can become obscured as they get grizzled and get chunks torn out of their their faces. But in general, that's the fingerprint you look for. So I sit down with Andy Chastany, our great uh, editor, along with Steve White, and we check the images of the lion that we believe is Solo. And bingo, he's still alive. Now, what had happened was the Ridge Pride, of which he was a member, and you remember we had 11 or 12 older cubs who were about a year older than Solo, and we had two big pride males who had been with the pride for about four years. Well, in the intervening interval, they'd been pushed out. They'd been ousted by nomadic males. And so those two old males who we'd followed from when they were on the other side of the river and had taken over the Ridge Pride, they'd gone. And as so often happens, at the time of a takeover, new males move in, they kill any small cubs, and sub-adults in the Pride are ousted. They're pushed out. That takes some of the pressure off the resources of the females who will mate with the new males and have their cubs... And will invest all their time in raising those youngsters. And these subadults, and these takeovers often would take place every couple of years or so. Sometimes maybe sooner. Sometimes later. Some pride males are pride males for six months and they're gone. Chased away. Others four years. Eight years even. Exceptional. But it happens. So those young year old cubs that we had watched with Solo in two thousand they had been pushed out, both the males and the females. And they would be roaming around as youngsters, as nomads, trying to make ends meet, stealing food from hyenas, killing for themselves, the young males getting bigger and stronger, until at four years of age, they'd take over another pride if they could, depending on the numbers of them and the state of the incumbents, if they were old or ragged and could be pushed out. And so this is a cycle that we see endlessly repeated, and we found Solo with one of those 11, 12 youngsters that had been giving him such a fun, if you like, rough time, had given him all the opportunity to become a young, tough lion. He, at a year and a half old, was accompanied by a two-and-a-half-year-old companion, male companion. They were hanging around where we'd last seen him with his mum, up on Rhino Ridge, in no man's land now. They're not part of a pride. They need to keep themselves out of harm's way as they get bigger and stronger for at least another year and a half, maybe two years. And then their time will come if they survive. Well, quite frankly, I was amazed that Solo, as tough as he was, as much as we loved him, I was amazed that he made it through the rainy season, when the wildebeest is not in the Mara, when food is short, with eleven or twelve older, bigger, larger cubs who would show him, cut him no slack at a kill. The males might, the older males, the pride males, might let the little cub feed with them, but competition would be fierce. But boy, oh boy, this young male, Solo, what a character and what a tough customer. We saw at one point with him scrapping, with his older companion and absolutely not budging an inch, giving as good as he got. We knew he was going to really, you know, he, he, he was going to make it or we believed he would. So what about the leopards? I want to scream and shout whoopee because guess what? Zawadi, daughter of Halftail, born in 1996, had three cubs. In guess where? Leopard Gorge. Can you imagine a leopard with cubs in Leopard Gorge? Well, we'd had half tail, with those cubs that were killed by the incoming male, infanticide, where we'd seen her so distressed and losing those cubs. And it had been recorded, first time on television. And she had gradually moved from that area, pushed out by Zawadi and her older daughter, Safi. Now, When we came down and we heard that Zawadi had cubs in Leopard Gorge, you can imagine, it's very hard for your enthusiasm not to run ahead of itself. So I could envisage all of the amazing shots we were going to get of this leopard with her little cubs in Leopard Gorge. Oh, whoa, whoa. She had three tiny cubs three weeks before filming. They were about four weeks old. And when we came down and we first went there, we were ecstatic I'd last seen her in 2001, so a year before, she had had another litter of cubs in Leopard Gorge, but she'd lost them. And what was quite extraordinary was the head driver, who I'd taught and trained as a young driver guide at Kichwatembo on the other side of the river, Shani Rapero. He was with friends of mine in Leopard Gorge when Sawadi gave birth. And at one point, She had her backside facing out of the cave where she had sought refuge to have her cubs and out pops the cub and she turns around, peels away the embryonic membranes, licks it and it was just like, again, one of those extraordinary moments in the life of this particular leopard. So she lost those cubs and then when we came across her, we knew she'd got three cubs and we were just thinking, this, this is going to be absolutely, for our audience, you know, what What I call it, gangbusters. It's going to be amazing. Well, that night, she was in a very exposed position with the place that she now had the cub. So she started off at this big fortress of a rock where there used to be a big fig tree at the entrance to the gorge from the west side. So she was up there, and that's a pretty safe place. But she then moved further down the... Uh, the gorge because that's what leopards that's what all of our cats do they move from time to time with their small cubs to avoid the scent building up too much to be rather like when somebody's worried a person of uh, you know somebody's following them or maybe going to track their movements so every day they take a different route home well with leopards every so often you move your cubs so as the local bush telegraph between the lions and the hyenas it's going to you're going to try and you know, ensure that you keep one step ahead of the competition. So that night, as we went back to camp, she moved her cubs, and we had seen that she had a Thompson's gazelle tree uh, kill. So she killed a Thompson's gazelle and she'd hauled it up into a tree pretty visibly right opposite to the cave where her small cubs were. And we were there that first night, and I just thought to myself, This. Uh, you know, this This is not good. You've got little cubs. It's in an area where lions, and we know the hyenas use leopard gorge as a den site. They hang out there. They emerge at night. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not great for Zawadi. That cub is way too open. A lion or le- a hyena could easily walk into it. Now, hopefully the little cubs would be tucked far back into the recesses of the cave. But who knows? But now you bring a kill there, which is going to attract a, you know, a hyena's got a nose that can sniff out a kill at a kilometre away. And the offal that she had pulled out of the carcass before taking it up. This was absolutely like inviting the hyenas and the lions to come and check out the party. So we went home with an, a, an air of trepidation, and rightly so, because next morning we come back and we find that Zawadi... Has actually moved to the big rock so the following morning we come back we find Zawadi very nervous and we're thinking hyenas and then we find that actually she has one cub and we just prayed that another cub that all three cubs would have survived but we film her in the mouth of this huge rocky fortress And with one little cub, and at one point it actually sort of looks as if it's going to crawl out and fall over the edge, and she she grabs it, and she picks it up by the scruff of the neck, and she gently pulls it back. Well, it wasn't looking good, and quite extraordinary, and this is really quite something. The DeWitt family a family of Americans had actually picked up a copy of a CD-ROM that we did called Safari in around 1994-95. And in it was a map. It was an immersive experience. You could check a map on the CD-ROM. You could search for animals in Leopard Gorge. We highlighted where Leopard Gorge was. And we had all the different animals you might find in Leopard Gorge. And the DeWitt family had come to Kenya And they'd left Nairobi and they'd driven to the Mara. They'd somehow, and goodness knows how they did this, because it's not easy. Uh, It took me ages to get the hang of finding my way back to Leopard Gorge. They'd found Leopard Gorge from our CD-ROM and the map. And guess what? When they arrived, they found Zawadi with her cubs. And guess what? They found us who'd made the CD-ROM. So we drove off a little bit and we shook hands and we we had some selfies taken with her, or with the family and with their children. And 20 years later, they caught up with us. In fact, just the other day, I was at Java Coffee House at Galleria and there was the DeWitt family sitting down. I was having a meeting with somebody else and then at one point, the mum came over with the two daughters who'd been just little back then. So 20 years later, and they came and we met up. It was a wonderful moment. And of course, for them, just a stroke of luck to be able to find this extraordinary leopard zawadi up at Leopard Gorge. Well, we come back. We're nervous. We're thinking it's it's all over here. How is she going to, you know, is she going to be able to recoup? Has she lost all the cubs? Did she just have one? Well, we figured because we waited, just one cub. We come back the next morning, not a sign of... Of Zawadi, My heart, I don't want to say it was broken, but it was just like, oh no, not again, like with half-tail. You find her, she's got cubs, you imagine, you dream, all finished. But that's the nature of life for the big cats. Like I said, you don't need to create jeopardy. There's jeopardy just in, in the everyday of their lives. So we later found that Zawadi had carried that last cub Six miles, ten kilometres north to Moses Rock, where she'd hung out with Safi, her daughter, who was now round about three years of age. And then a fire broke out. I mean, it was like, it reminded me of Perry the Squirrel and Disney and Fires in the Forest and Pine Martins and Jeopardy. There you go again. Anyway... Fortunately, the fire stopped short of Moses Rock, but later she lost that last cub and then once again disappeared in the way that Zawadi was, and half-tail, or any leopard for that matter, can just disappear from view. She's there, you just don't know where. So drama with the marshlands. I mean, what a story for Sabah. In at the deep end, three litters of cubs born along Bilashaka. Along the, In fact, it was the branch of Bilashaka, which runs parallel to Governor's Airstrip. We call it the Airstrip Lugger. But even then, it's interesting to look back at this, because what happened next was partly due to the fact that gradually the bush was retreating. Where there were thickets and safe places for dens for the cubs to be born and to be brought up and kept isolated from other members of the pride, it was beginning to thin out fire, elephants, vehicles driving in and out of the croton thickets and the Maasai coming in through that area with their cattle, sometimes cutting down bushes and trees for their thorn bush enclosures. So the landscape was changing and it wasn't favouring the lions. So now what happened? Well we had Mama Laga with three cubs and we had White Eye with four cubs and they were in the Bilashaka Laga but keeping the cubs separately, as you would want to do, like I say, to let them imprint. And then guess what? We had one lioness who was called Nusu Nusu. And she was accompanied, and it's a mystery quite what had happened, by a 7th month old female, a nine- to ten-month-old female, and a one-and-a-half-year-old male who we called Kijana, the young one. Well, where on earth, how on earth did that happen, that this one lioness who was related to White Eye and Mama Laga and to Bibi and to the blonde sisters. How did she end up with three young cubs, all of different ages? Well, one reason is possibly we had lost earlier on previously in incidents with the Maasai two of our older lionesses, the old one and bump nose. So could it have been that when these cubs were orphaned, that they latched on to whoever they could within the pride and had benefited and had managed to survive against the odds because of the nurturing of the group and particularly Nusu Nusu. Where she was, you'd find them. Well, they found Mama Laga and her three cubs. And of course, the seven-month-old and 10-month-old female, they wanted to play. That's what Being a lion's all about. But these little cubs, four or five weeks old, are way too small. They should not be introduced to the pride until they're about eight weeks old. Prior to that, kept at a den, moved from one den to another, kept so as they can imprint on mum, and when they are introduced to the pride, know exactly where to go when there's trouble. Now they're being mauled, not intentionally, but just playfully. But they're babies. They could barely walk. So Mama Lugger, she did her best. Snarls, lunges, slaps. And then it's just too much for her. And she goes off hunting. And when we come back, we find that White Eye has found Mama Lugger's cubs. She'd been moving along the Lugger with her cubs. No no, no ill intent and she'd come across three other cubs, Mama Lugger's cubs. She'd gone hunting. Now the three cubs and the four cubs mingle. They're all the same age. And then when White Eye moves further back up the lugger, all seven cubs follow. Mama Lugger returns, no cubs. She calls. Wom. She sniffs. She moves up and down the lugger, doing everything possible. She's salivating. She's distressed. And then guess what? It's as if her mothering instinct, as if her maternal instincts, suddenly just disappear. They escape her. They're gone. Because very shortly afterwards, She's three kilometers away in the marsh, mating with Blondie, father of her cubs, the older of the two males. And then another thing happens, because we've got Carly, 10 years old. Remember that White Eye and lugger, four years old, their first litters of cubs. Carly, mother of Bebe, one of the age mates of White Eye and Mama lugger. Now she's got three cubs of a similar age, and she comes along the lugger, And she joins the other seven. So now, and Carly was potentially either the aunt of White Eye and Mamalaga or possibly might even have been the mother. So we've now got ten cubs all together. And primarily with, at that point, and it was sort of, it was almost tragic to see White Eye, in that lugger, the poor thing, I mean, you know, 10 cubs at times, yes, Carly was there, but as often will happen when you've got these lionesses with these cubs, yes, they formed a crash, that's in everybody's interest because raised together as same age cubs, large groups means a better future because ultimately you're social and if you're pushed out of your pride, whether you're lionesses or males, the more of you, the better. And so there's strength in numbers. But at times, our lionesses, whether it's, um, you know, Carly or whether it's White Eye, are going to go off and hunt. And that means the cubs will often be left at that kind of age in the safety of the lugger, you would hope, certainly. And so. It meant that you would see sometimes white eye with 10 cubs literally being monstered. I mean, a bunch of grizzling little babies and her milk. She's trying to provision them as best she can. But fortunately, as I say, you've got Carly. She's lactating. Mama Lugger, she's off with Blondie mating. But there was sufficient milk to actually get those cubs through to the point at which they would be able to eat meat and join the pride and become integrated into the pride. Now, when we next see Saba, she's in camp, she's getting up early to go out and see what the martial arts are doing, and Split Nose and Lispy, our blonde sisters, are in camp. So everybody's not quite up a tree, but, you know, being cautious, but as Saba you know, rightfully, ruthfully says... Uh, you know, there we are spending all these resources and time and energy looking for our big cats, and they come and find us. Well, the place we were camped, along the Mara River, just up from Main Governor's Camp, who were provisioning everything for us. Wonderful place to be camped, and. When we used to come into camp, I used to come into that same campsite when there was nobody camped there. And I would come in at times because it's a great place to be able to watch the hippo or the elephants. And I remember having one friend from America, David Goodnow, with me, and I would stop the car. In those days, you couldn't get very far in through. the, The forest was so dense before the elephants really sort of trashed it. And you had to park your car and walk very carefully in through this narrow pathway, through the bushes, past the trees, And then you'd come out at the bank of the river. And there was one huge African green heart tree. And whenever I would come up alongside that on foot now, very carefully, looking out for buffalo elephants, I would always take a look as I came up to it, just look at the base of it in case there was something there, hoping there wasn't. And then one day there was one of the Marsh Pride males. A huge male. And it was like, did I really see that? I mean just feet away and I looked at the lion and the lion looked at me and it just let out a blood-curdling sort of grunt and then it turned tail and I can hear the sound of its feet thump thump, its tail lashing as it disappeared down into the the vegetation. My friend David Goodnow behind me, I just had my hand going back, just gesticulating back, not saying a word and of course he hadn't got a clue what was coming. Anyway, just shows you generally, lions want to get away from people. So Simon now has an extraordinary moment with Amber and her three cubs because suddenly a big male lion has spotted them. And lions do not like any of the other cats They're aggressive towards them. They will kill them if they can. They've certainly got the size and the power to do it. And it's all about competition. It's not about eating what they kill if they kill another predator. It's about, you know, you're on my turf. This is my place. I'm the big one around here. Give way. And generally, the other cats very wisely do everything possible to avoid lions. And in this instance, the male, it's, you know, games up. They're in the open. The cubs are terrified. They turn and begin to try and, you know, move away. And mum, Amber, is hackles raised. She looks almost, I mean, you know, just making herself look bigger. A cheetah trying to look like a lion. A cheetah trying to look as intimidating as possible. Well, when you look at the pictures, you know, small head, streamlined body, and here's a thumping big male. So the cheetah weighs, what, 100 pounds? 40 kilos, 45 kilos, 110 pounds at most. Lion, 180 kilos, 400 pounds, no contest. The only thing the cheetah's got going for it is its speed. And so she hackles raised, growling. I mean, the noise, wonderful growling, like, you know, I want to kill you. Just get out of my place. And the noise, of course, is a warning to both the cubs. When the mum suddenly makes that noise, it's like, whoa, There's trouble. Let's get out of here. So she's giving those cubs a chance just to creep away, not blindly panic and race off, but just basically go a little way and then hunker down. Keep small, keep tight. Don't make yourself obvious. And now she's facing the male. And as he takes a step forward, because now he's thinking, well, I can deal with this. She just as arches her back, growling, you know, and ready to divert his attention by leading him away, by racing towards him, charging a little bit towards him, and then rushing off to try and draw his attention away from those cubs. And eventually, incredibly dramatic footage, laded with ladled with emotion. Simon anxious, really anxious, thinking, "Oh no, are, are we going to have murder here? Is this going to be mayhem?" And then the relief as the male decides, "You know what?" nothing in it for me there's no food if there'd been food there, a kill well the lion would have gone in and taken it same way as the hyenas that's what they would have wanted and so he just moves off and then the little cubs greet with mum a beautiful moment and so back at camp well what was it like for us i mean literally up at five back at seven just time for a bucket shower oh did it feel good hot water perhaps a drink around the campfire, quick bite to eat, and then fall into bed. And then before you know it, knock, knock, and you're up and you're off again. But we loved every minute of it. Six or eight weeks in the field. It gradually became less, as it would do almost just four weeks eventually when we were doing Big Cat Week. But just idyllic. And, and we were making great television and we knew it. And we watched the storyboard. We saw the sequences coming in. We got all those females with cubs and it's just incredible. And then at one point we found Safi. So Zawadi's female cub, leopard, three years old, now independent. And then for me, just one of those moments, so emotional, which I think, I hope for the audience captures everything that it is that draws one to the safari experience and for me always, particularly leopards because we find Zawadi, finally so she's, the cubs have gone and she's back in Leopard Gorge and we're there early one morning and the hyrax are calling as in so many times before, Buona listen to the sounds the other animals will lead you to what you're looking for It could be the hyrax calling. It could be vervet monkeys chickering, making that alarm call. They've spotted it. Could be baboons, making their alarm call. What have they seen? Follow the look of their direction. Where are they gazing? Where are they looking to? And right there, sitting right in front of my vehicle, further down the track, towards the west end of the gorge where she'd had those cubs, was the wadi. I mean, I was in heaven, I can promise you. It wouldn't matter how many times i have seen a leopard. It you, you catch your breath. And only when she moved, the camouflage of the rocks and the vegetation, only when she moved, could I see her. Oh my, right in front of me. What a stroke of luck. She's going to come right towards my car. She doesn't give us a second glance. It's as if we weren't here. And that's the way I like it. Now, wasn't that a life, a little moment of magic? I can't believe she did that. Now, when I said that, it's not that I couldn't believe that she walked up to the car and ignored us. It was just, isn't that wonderful? Those are the moments that you cherish. Where you're just a voyeur. You're a fly on the wall. You've located what you were looking for. And the subject of all of your joy and the wonderful images you're going to get isn't seemingly disturbed by your presence at all. And we named her Sawadi. We knew she was a gift and those kind of situations just underlined it. But it wasn't over yet. Later, we found her hunting in a lugger, intermittent watercourse, close to the gorge. And she was after a warthog. So it was September the warthogs, often quite a few of the animals, the topi, seasonal breeders, topi antelope, the impalas, the warthogs with their piglets. And she snatches a piglet and instantly the mother warthog is on her tail. And I tell you, even with lions, occasionally a warthog might turn and try and tusker a, a lion. Generally, they'll just try and take off, get away from it. The lions are too big overpower them but with a leopard I have seen a leopard knocked off its feet by a mother when it had caught a piglet and she just turned around and whacked the leopard and it scuttled off let go of the piglet and off it went into the off. the leopard went into the thicket now in this instance she's grabbed the piglet the mother's after her she races for a spindly tree and I mean my goodness what a spindly tree and just As she arrived at the tree, the mother warthog lunged towards her, literally pirouetted up in the air, and just a glancing blow hit her in her flank with her mouth open, with those razor-sharp lower tusks, the incisors ready to just rip into her, hooking at her flank, unfortunately didn't hit her. But my overriding memory was Zawadi, mid-air, grabbing that tree trunk, With one paw with those extended claws latching onto it, she's at 90 degrees to the tree. She then gets her other paw onto the tree as well, and she is up that tree with the piglet still wriggling in her mouth. Glancing blow, boy, was she lucky! Managed to cling to the tree, she's secured food for herself, bounds higher. And then the mother piglet or mother warthog races off to join the others. And so the finale of this, it was a wonderful series. As I say, it was driven by all of the action with the Cubs, the Marsh Pride with all of those young Cubs, with Amber and her Cubs, all the, 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 the daring do of that situation in the Mara Triangle recorded by Simon. And then Sabah, our new presenter, giving emotion and, and just being in the moment, and there is a, a point at which the series ends where Sabra is in her Land Rover. It's an open Land Rover. She's sitting there. And Blondie, one of our pride males, provides what I think she described as a Pavarotti moment. Stands two meters from the front of her car and just roars. Oh, 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 oh. Uh, 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 and stretches what a farewell so that's it 2002 hope you've enjoyed it plenty more coming of big cat diary uncut and so just to end off with just to remind everybody that of course we would love to hear from you do leave a message for us uh, at the end of the podcast, there's a place where you can leave your thoughts so as we know whether you're getting from us the things that you want to hear about, because there's going to be more series of podcasts. It's not just going to be a Big Cat diary. Diary. We want to know whether you'd like us to be talking to other people, whether you'd like us to be talking about other things. Well, we won't know unless you tell us. And do remember too that we have a series of ebooks on wildlife photography. The first, well, the third one's about to be launched any minute now. In fact, it probably will be by the time you listen to this. So, the first three ebooks, there was one for beginners, Guide to Wildlife Photography. Then we had 10 iconic images that you could hear the stories behind. Then understanding mastering the light understanding exposure and then there'll be two more in that first series of five ebooks and then plenty more coming where those have come from too so let us know your thoughts enjoy our podcasts and our ebooks and we hope to see you soon thank you so much for listening bye bye.